Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, again, as Kanda said, my name is Matt Duell, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And again, if this is your first time with us, so glad that you have joined us here uh, this morning. Well, as many of you know, it has been an absolutely crazy week at uh, the Duell House. Um, and just to catch some of you up just a little bit, and I'll try to spare you from some of the gory and gross details. Uh, but last Saturday, our six-year-old son, Jeremiah, came down with some sort of stomach bug virus, uh, flu sort of thing. And, you know, we uh, did everything that you do in these situations and trying to keep him hydrated and eating the right foods and helping him to rest and whatnot. And it just got worse and worse and worse throughout the weekend. Um, to the point that we got to, to Monday and uh, he looked like this. I mean, just so sad. It was like we were carting E.T. around town. I mean, he was so dehydrated and so tired and just like almost zombie-like in um, the way that he was being. So we decided uh, by Monday evening, we needed to go and get him some help. So we took him to the ER at, at KCH. Long story short, through some observation, through some tests, um, they decided that they needed to load him and Erica up into an ambulance, uh, take him to the Children's Hospital at Lutheran's in Fort Wayne. Uh, so they, they did that. I followed behind. Uh, I think we got to the hospital around 4.30 on Tuesday morning and stayed there until uh, about 2 o'clock Thursday afternoon. So as you can imagine, it was a crazy week with lots of emotion and uh, just so much uh, up and down. Uh, the doctors, through their test, basically ruled out anything that was serious or had any kind of long-term implications, basically just deciding, hey, I think this is a virus, one that actually his siblings had been through. It just took root in him in just a different, uh, more powerful way. And so uh, for him, he just needed to get hydrated, needed to be eating again, um, slow down his system just a little bit so that they could send him home. And they decided that by Thursday, he was in good enough shape uh, to do that. So so hard to watch your son go through that. And certainly one of those situations where you wish you could just take his place, that you could switch uh, places. Uh, so many emotions, you know, as the doctor would come to give us news, just the feeling of like, what are we about to hear? Is this going to be one of those life altering, course altering kinds of things? So just the pins and needles feelings as the doctor would approach us. And then just the relief and the joy when we found out that he's going to be fine, he's okay, he's on the right track. And then as I'd walk around the, the hospital hall, his floor, and I'd see other children and other families and sort of peer into some of their condition just a little bit and realize that a lot of these kids are not going to be going home anytime soon. And just feeling the weight of that and the heaviness of that and grieving that for those uh, families. Just so many ups and downs. But one of the uh, perhaps most beautiful and powerful things, um, and one of the things that I want to say thank you to you all here this morning, was just the unbelievable outpouring of love and uh, gestures of love that you all poured out to uh, our family. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of just gestures of love and care uh, for us. Text messages, uh, phone calls, emails, notes, visits, meals. I mean, it was just absolutely crazy to the point that we just didn't know what to do with all of you and the, the many ways that you were wanting to serve us. So, so thank you for that. And what was so incredible was 
Um, my family, my parents, my grandmother, my aunt, they were in town visiting this past weekend. And so because of everything with Jeremiah, they were able to extend their stay a little bit to help us care for our other kids. And uh, they got to see our community here in action. And, you know, for us to move 700 miles away from all of our family, that was obviously a huge concern um, is what was community going to look like. And so our missional community who is just... um, absolutely taking care of us at the hospital, coming to visit us, bringing us food, doing all these things. They got a hold of my mom's phone number and started to call her and check in on my parents and my family. And how are you guys doing? And what can we do for you? And ended up bringing them some food. And it was just such a beautiful, beautiful experience. So I feel like I sit up here just about every week and have something to thank you all for. And I certainly do not tire of that. So thank you for Uh, being our community and helping carry us through this past week. You all are truly amazing, and I'm grateful for you. Well, this morning, as Condo said, I have the privilege of uh, continuing our series, Vantage, a look through Ephesians. Let me pray for us, and we will open God's word together. Father, thank you for this moment and this opportunity to be here together. And Lord, we are yours. We open ourselves up to that, and we open ourselves up to what you have to teach us here this morning. Lord, help us to listen well. Help us to put distractions on hold. Help us to open ourselves up to your spirit. And we're grateful that you are here with us. And um, Lord, be with us as we read your word now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to be picking up in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, please go ahead and open up to that. If you don't, we'll have the scriptures on the screen for you. Uh, Just a little bit of review and context for you. Uh, Ephesians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the churches in Ephesus. Ephesus is what we now know as modern day Turkey. And so Paul, who was a prisoner at the time in a Roman prison, uh, we think wrote this letter around 62 A.D., And as Kondo pointed out at the beginning of our series, what is so fascinating about this letter is it's one of the only letters and only moments in which Paul in his writings of scripture is not uh, confronting something. He's not dealing with a problem or some kind of church drama, something that he needs to uh, face and sort of iron out and level out with people. It's as if someone says to Paul, hey, if you could have a moment with the church in in Ephesus and you could speak to these Christians about Christianity, about their faith, about their identity in Jesus, about their walk and what a relationship with God is about, Paul, what would you say? And it feels like that is what we have here in this book. So we are leaning in to this conversation to take note. So again, chapter two, verse 11. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now I want to pause here really briefly. And I just want to thank Kondo for so powerfully leading us through the first seven weeks of this series. And then the moment Paul brings up circumcision, he hands the reins over (laughs) to me. I mean, it's just so... Kind of him. It's a pastor's dream to talk about circumcision with a large group of people. So it's just one of those fun pastor jokes that we play on each other. So, so cool that we could uh, be in on that together. I'm going to send him to a conference on Leviticus or something just to, 
just to get him back. Okay, so sorry, verse, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Few observations here. The church in Ephesus is a Gentile church. And you may be someone that says, Hey, I hear this term Gentile. It comes up a lot. I'm not quite sure what that means or who these people are. Well, back in that day, uh, the Jewish people, they saw themselves from their perspective as God's chosen people. So there were the Jews, God's chosen people. And then there was everyone else, the Gentiles. Now, we certainly have our cultural and social tensions in our world. Uh, race relations is obviously something that has re-entered the national conversation more recently in, in some pretty troubling ways. Um, and there's been a new energy and, and, and even hatred towards that that's been uh, just discouraging and disheartening to, to see and experience. But as tense as things are and have become for us, I'm not sure that our issues fully compare to the hatred that the Jews and the Gentiles had for one another. As one author put it, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as fuel for the fires of hell. It's a strong statement. It was against the law for a Jewish person to help a Gentile woman who was giving birth because you would then be contributing to bringing another heathen into the world. Now, the Gentiles certainly were not squeaky clean by any right. The Greeks and the Romans often would just wage war and go in and uh, conquer and enslave people and um, just destroy people groups because you weren't like them. And, and the Jews were certainly one of their primary targets. To the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. And to the Gentiles, the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race. And so this issue of circumcision was very central in their hatred of each other. If you were a Jewish male, you would be circumcised at birth. This was part of your tradition that dated all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis. It was part of tradition. It was part of their law. And if you were a Gentile male, you generally would not be circumcised. So this was a very hostile and dividing line. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Us, them. And Paul is speaking to this Gentile church and he is saying, hey, I just, I just want you to remember where you have come from. You've come from this place where the, the, the Jewish people and the people around you looked in on you as if you were lesser than you were an outsider. You were the uncircumcised. We'll continue in verse 12. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul in verse 12 here gives us five disadvantages that the Gentiles faced before Jesus. First, they were separate from Christ. They were outside of Christ. They were alienated from the Messiah. You see, the Jews for hundreds of years had gone through oppression. They had gone through slavery and wars and being taken captive and their city being under siege. But in the context of their culture, there was prophecy of this coming Messiah. There was someone coming that was going to save them. There was someone coming that was going to be a new king that would help to resurrect them and make them powerful again as a nation. 
The Jews had this to look forward to and to, to be anxious about, and yet the Gentiles did not. They were aliens to the Messiah. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Aliens to the Messianic people. They were not welcomed in Israel, not welcomed in Jerusalem. And we'll see a little bit more of that in a moment. They were not part of the teaching or worship in the temple. They were excluded from being citizens in Israel. Third, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Because of their geographical location and then because of the makeup of who they were, they would not have access into the temple. They would not have access to the scripture. They would not have an awareness or a knowledge of these covenant promises, these things that God is saying, I'm on a plan to redeem you. I am coming. I'm going to redeem you. They, they would have been apart from these promises. They would have had no hope. See, most Gentiles were religious. They had their gods. They had their temples, their statues, the things in which they worshiped and they sacrificed to, but they didn't have Jesus. So they had no hope. And finally, they were without God. As Kondo spoke last week, the outlook and the prognosis of a life without God is not Good. We briefly look back into chapter two, verse one and two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom, the heir. Alienation from God and alienation from people has a very dehumanizing and debilitating effect. It's not a condition in which someone can thrive. In fact, it's an environment where Satan can speak lives and can hold on to this death grip over someone's life. Then in verse 13, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 13, the whole thing has this beautiful shift. Up until now, it's been about the Gentiles, about their conditions. Remember where you came from. Remember your situation, the darkness, the hopelessness, the loneliness. Remember, you were alienated and excluded. And then Paul throws in one of his famous, but now, and everything changes. It's a new day. It's a new way of life. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then verse 14, for he, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. The Bible is filled with scripture about Jesus, about this Messiah being this person of peace. In Isaiah chapter nine, there's a prophecy about the coming of the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter two, the angels are singing to the shepherds as Jesus is coming into the world, peace to those on whom his favor rests. In John 14, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the last supper, preparing for his death, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. John 20, when Jesus comes back from the dead and sees his disciples for the first time, his first statement is peace be with you. For he himself is our peace. 
This is so powerful. Say this with me. For he himself is our peace. One more time. For he himself is our peace. Could you use more peace in your life? You may want to remember this one. You may want to tuck this one away. And just a quick side note, a decision-making matrix, if you will. People often ask, hey, I have this situation in my life that I'm trying to figure out. I have a decision that I'm trying to make. I have a couple of options and I'm not sure which way to go or, or what God would have me to do. And a few things that I will ask people will be, well, number one, what do the people around you, the people that know you the most, what would they say about this? What, what, are, what are their thoughts about this decision that you're, you're facing? Number two, is there anything about this decision that could be illegal, immoral, or sinful? Anything in here that you just shouldn't be a part of? And then finally, as you're weighing your options and trying to figure out, is there peace or is there chaos? Because if the people around you are coming around you and celebrating and saying, hey, I think this is great. And if there's nothing around this that says this is illegal or sinful or immoral, and you are experiencing just an incredible amount of peace when you are looking into maybe a situation that is just unusual, I would say that Jesus may very well be in that. If you're in this situation, you're finding this tension and this chaos. That's not from the Lord. For he himself is our peace. Continuing on in verse 14, who has made the two groups one? He has made the two groups one. It's a new human identity, a new spiritual condition. Jesus' death represents Jew and Gentile believers as newly created humans. He didn't Judaize the Gentiles and he didn't make the Jews more worldly. It's a whole new thing in which he created. This is what Ephesians 2.10 talks about when it says, for we are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus. It's the work of Jesus where he has created an entire new way. The two groups have been made one. He has made the two groups one and he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. This is packed with, with so much significance. And so much of this would have jumped off the page for these first century Gentiles. In 20 BC, King Herod, he reconstructed the uh, temple in Jerusalem and it would have looked uh, something like this. And in this temple, there would have been eight gates that would have given you access into the uh, outer area. And the outer area, anyone was allowed to come in and thus it was known as the court of the Gentiles. You can see here in those areas, that is the uh, court of the Gentiles. Anyone is allowed in this area. The actual temple itself was enclosed with a barrier. And the interest of these barriers had these stones with these transcriptions that looked uh, something like this. And on this transcription uh, carved out in Latin and Greek, it said this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade, which surrounds this sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. These guys could have used a little help with their Southern hospitality. I'm just saying, maybe like a Chick-fil-A in the court of the Gentiles, get everybody to just chill out a little bit. You see, this entire system of worship and sacrifice was set up for exclusivity. It was set up 
to barricade the outsiders, to keep them out. And what Jesus does is he comes and he flips the script and he says, in my way, in the new way, these barriers, these dividing walls of hostility, they just don't work. In my version, in the way that this goes, the two will become one. But this passage is talking far more about other things other than just a physical wall. And he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. The the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility is also the law. And Paul is saying that has been destroyed, that has been set aside. And for many of us who've been around the church for a while, that instantly raises a little bit of tension and potentially a problem. Wait, 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 destroy the law? I feel like Jesus said something, something about this. I feel like that doesn't match up. Matthew chapter five, verse 17, Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So right there, Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it or to complete it. But yet Paul says Jesus came to destroy the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, and through his flesh or his death, set aside the law. So how does that work? How does that match up? So let's unpack this just a little bit. The Mosaic law, this is the law that we're talking about. The Mosaic law is the entire foundation of the Jewish culture and the Jewish belief system. In it are 613 commandments for which people were supposed to live. It's the standard of perfection and holiness. As Kondo mentioned last week, one of the first characteristics that we find out about God is his holiness. He is perfect. He is holy. And to be in relationship with a holy, perfect God, there must be a standard set. And that standard is set through the fleshing out of the Mosaic law. It's impossible to keep the law perfect. Many scholars believe the law can be broken down into three uh, categories. First, the moral law. This is the, you know, do not steal, do not kill, do not covet, the Ten Commandments sort of things, the moral law. And then there was the ceremonial law. These would be the laws that would say, this is how you atone for sin. This is how you approach God to make things right in worship and in the temple and in sacrifice and how you prepare yourself for the religious ceremonies and the holidays and those sort of things. And then finally, the civil law, how you live and operate as a nation, the uh, governing people, the speeding tickets and paying your taxes sort of things. And I believe when Jesus says he's coming to fulfill the law, he is saying that through his life, he will fulfill the moral law. He'll live it perfectly. He will never sin. He will maintain the standard of holiness that is required to connect in relationship with God. Then giving up his life and dying on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, he also is fulfilling the ceremonial law. And when he fulfills the ceremonial law, there is no longer a use or a purpose for it. And that is what Paul is talking about. It's the point of Jesus' death where where Paul is saying, look, the death of Jesus, this is where the barrier is destroyed. The wall of hostility is torn down. The law is set aside. By fulfilling this law, Jesus has brought down this wall of hostility, not only to bring the two groups to be one, but he has brought down this wall between man and God. 
God being a holy, righteous God, he requires justice. So we know from Romans, the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that debt and God's justice has been satisfied. And those who have faith and trust in Jesus are no longer separated from God. And they are at peace with God. For he himself is our peace. Also, by fulfilling the law, it ends the need for circumcision to to be a thing between the Jews and the Gentiles. This issue uh, would have been very tense and incredibly important for the early Christians to to work through. And just imagine yourself being maybe, say, an early to mid-30s young Gentile man and a Jewish Christian comes to your community and he shares the gospel with you. Your eyes are open and all of a sudden you, you are connected with Jesus and you're like, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a follower. And then everybody kind of gets a little tense and they're sort of looking at you like, yeah, okay, great. Welcome to the family. A couple of things we got to talk about here. Don't know if you've heard about this whole circumcision thing. Um, Man, super awkward. So (laughs) the reality is, is that Jesus' death clears the way for these things to keep people from God. While circumcision is a significant sign or seal for a Jewish Christian because it is part of their ancestry, it's part of their history and their roots, it is not required nor necessary for fellowship or relationship with God. To which all the adult male Gentiles in the house would have been like, whoo, praise Jesus. I'm gonna read Colossians 2, 13 through 15 for you. When you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, we find a new way, a new life, for he himself is our peace. His death creates peace with God, and it opens up doors for peace with others. Let's pick back up Ephesians chapter 2, the second half of verse 15, uh, 15, excuse me. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have both have access to the father by one spirit. Jesus makes the love and the grace of God available to everyone. His love is all-inclusive No one is excluded from it. His offer of forgiveness is extended to anyone who wishes to take it and to place their faith in him. And I think this is where the church universally could improve. This is where we could begin to lay aside our differences, our prejudices, our fear, our pride, our selfishness, and extend this kind of love, this kind of peace, this hope to anyone who would listen. As it says here, at the cross, he put to death the hostility. As I said earlier, when we were in the hospital, you all came out of the woodwork to care for us and extend love and peace 
to us, and which if you think about that is, is pretty crazy, honestly. I mean, the, the reality is a lot of us don't know each other that well, right? And if you really took a look, there's probably a few things about my family that you might find just a little bit offensive. I mean, we are from Atlanta, Georgia, number one, and you may have an issue with that. We are foreigners who have invaded your land. Just ask our neighbors about that. They will confirm that for you. And we've come with a bit of a chip on our shoulder, quite honestly. You see, my, my boys and me, we are diehard, unwavering, unrelenting Atlanta Hawks and Atlanta Falcon fans. I mean, I don't have any issue with, with the Colts except for just a few hours on Sunday, November 22nd. But aside from that, me and the Colts are good, but the Pacers, oh guys, I'm telling I cannot root for the Pacers. I'm really, I'm really, really sorry. We have faced off enough with them that we do have a bit of a rivalry and, and I just absolutely struggle with the Pacers. And hey, while we're at it, I just want to say you can't add sweet and low to tea and call it sweet tea. All right. It's just, it's not a real thing. It's not a real thing. So you're deceived if you think otherwise. So I'm just... Just laying it all out there. And so listen, the, the point is, it would be so easy for you to look at me and at this point, you know, have a bit of like a, uh, and then call me a dirty word and be like, uh, you're one of those foreskin people. That's the reality of what was going on there. The cultural divide created that kind of tension. And I'm sorry to be crass, but that is the way in which we treat other people in our lives. When we spot differences, when we spot certain things that, ooh, this doesn't feel right or this isn't like me, we suddenly begin to separate ourselves and create dividing lines and barriers that Jesus came to tear down for good. Fortunately, through Jesus, you guys are able to see past some of my problems and some of my offensive issues. And all joking aside, that is the work of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. When the gospel has power for us to look past our issues with one another and to see Jesus, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We have an opportunity to be people that just are a part of a massive outpouring of love and grace and peace. And yet so many times we let our differences, we let our prejudice, we let some of our fears build the walls back up that Jesus has torn down. And as I was reflecting about the overwhelming outpouring of love this week, I began to think about the others, the outsiders, the, the foreigners, the aliens. There's a, uh, there's a grocery store um, in town um, that I have a love-hate relationship with. All right, I'll be honest. I have a hate-hate relationship with. Um, I, won't, I won't name it. It starts with all, ends with D. But anyway, um, this place, I just, I struggle with this place. And actually, the first time I, I went to an Aldi was in Atlanta. And Erica called me when I was at work and said, hey, could you run home, get a few things? Actually, um, Aldi, they have, you know, this, uh, I think it was ricotta cheese that I really would like for you to get. And I thought, well, okay, sure. I've never been there, but uh, I'll go. And so I, I get the list and I walk up to the door and uh, I go up to the carts. And so I go to pull a cart and it's, what is the, there's a chain on this thing. Does, 
did they realize that they have their carts locked up? This, okay, whatever. So I leave and I move on. And so I go into the store and it's this really confusing maze to me. And people are kind of robotically just moving through and filling their carts that I somehow can't get a hold of. And it just really frustrated me. I said, forget it. I'm out of here. And I turned around and I left and I went across the street probably paid like $14 more. And that's fine. Support the 15-year-old kid that's wrangling carts in the parking lot. I'm okay with that because I felt comfortable in this other store. And I said, listen, I don't ever want to go back to that place if I don't have to. Well, we moved here and and sure enough, one night Erica calls me and says, hey, could you go get a few things? Uh, Could you please go to Aldi get a few? (sighs) Okay. So I pull up and at that point I'm thinking like, oh wait, I need a quarter. Okay, who has quarters, all right? So I'm digging through the car, like under the mats, through the console, and I can't find a quarter. I'm literally going around the parking lot, just praying like there's gotta be a quarter laying on the ground somewhere and there's not. And so then I think, well, you know what? I bet they've got those, bla- those basket things where you can load. They don't, they don't have any baskets. And so then I go inside and I, I make it a little further into the store than I had last time. And I'm so confused by their layout. It's like cheese is next to motor oil, next to things that should be refrigerated that aren't. And I'm just like, what is going on with this place? So I I basically get as much stuff as I can actually physically carry, go up to the register, kind of dump it out. And the lady's like, where's your, where's your bag? And I, "Uh, you don't, don't you have those? No, no, we don't, we don't carry bags. I'm like, what? So I carry this load of stuff out. I'm dropping stuff all through the parking lot, going back, picking it up going. And so I, I'm just, I'm like, that's never again, never again am I going back to this place. Well, feeling like um, our, our staff team here at Mission Point is a group of safe people that I can trust and just open up with. Um, I made the terrible mistake, one of our staff meetings of sharing my feelings for Aldi. And I'm telling you, if it was Old Testament time, I think I would have been stoned. Like they rose up against me with such angst and, and frustration. Like you're an idiot. How could you not like Aldi? It's the best place. It's like where dreams come true. And you know, it's better than Disney. And I'm like, it's a grocery store that's terrible. I don't understand what you're talking about. And they're like, oh, it's so cheap and so many cool things. So some of them begin to help educate me a little bit of the system and how, hey, there are actually boxes you can get and put things in. And yes, bring a quarter and get a cart and all these things. And, and so the day came, Erica called me again, asked me to get some stuff. And so this time I went prepared. I had my quarter. I went and got my stuff. I, I slowly started to make my way around the aisles. I'm doing some Deb Musser breathing, you know, treatments, just kind of keeping the things down. And so then I get around and I, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Wow. This stuff's really cheap. Like, this is amazing. How are they doing a pound of coffee for a dollar? That makes no sense to me. And I'm starting to get a little like into it. Like, I wonder what else I can find and kind of going around. And I got to, you know, the front and checked out totally without incident this time, you know, felt much safer. And the reality is for me is I was an outsider, to that system. See, the insiders, they knew how it worked. They knew how to navigate their way through. They knew the the pieces and the intricacies and the ways in which things worked. And, And I was an outsider and it's just no fun being an outsider. And in our county, there's an estimated 50,000 people who are not experiencing the love of Jesus and they are outsiders. 
And I started to wonder, what if we became known for pouring out this kind of love, this kind of grace, this kind of peace, the kind of peace that you all extended to my family this week? I think we do a pretty good job of taking care of our insiders. We're not perfect, but I think we do a really pretty good job of that. What if we became known for the way that we cared for our outsiders? Love Ops for us has been this experiment in trying to routinely stretch ourselves in this way as a church. And now we're standing at the launch of Love Blitz, a month-long invitation for us to lean into our county in a way that we never have before as a church. And what if we could set aside some of our differences, some of our prejudice, some of our fear, and lean into some possibly messy situations for the sake of bringing the peace of Jesus? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Think about where you were before Jesus. Like the Galatians condition in, 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 I mean, the Gentiles, excuse me, condition in verse 12, separated from Christ. No citizenship or community, no divine promises or blessing, no hope, no God. People apart from Christ will wrap their lives around something. And we have an opportunity to come in and to hold out hope, the hope. And as we wrap up, I want to say just something briefly about that. The gospel's invitation to be a part of this new humanity, to experience the love and mercy of God, that is for everyone, no exceptions. But the only way to it The only access to it is through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. Jesus speaking in John 14, six, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. And there's a growing spiritual movement that is saying that there are many paths to God, to what you call God. Most religions have this sort of setup of, hey, love God, love people. And as long as you are pointing your life in some way toward the divine and filling yourself with lots of good things, then we will all sort of end up in a good place at the end. And while we want to be extravagant in our inclusion to invite everyone everywhere to life, we are going to be completely exclusive about the fact that that life is in Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the hope. He is access to life in the Father. Jeremiah got to the place in the hospital where he was just done and he wanted to be home. And he's like, Dad, get me out of here. I don't like this place. I don't like these people. I don't trust these nurses. And I just, please, 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 I just, I just want to go home. And, and what if at one point I just said, hey, Jeremiah, listen, I, I know this is tough for you to, to understand. I'm really so sorry this is hard for you. Tell you what, why don't you tell me what you would like to do? And, and he says to me, I, I want to go home. I want to go home now. And I say, gosh, you know what? I totally get that. You, you have a really good point there. I mean, it makes so much sense that you would feel that way. And I appreciate you processing this, me, this, this with me and letting me know how you're feeling. And, and I hear what you're saying. And gosh, you would. You'd probably be so much more comfortable at home and you'd like the food there better. You know, hey, nurses, thanks so much for all that you're doing. We really appreciate all of this. But listen, Jeremiah's decided he wants to go home and he has a plan to take care of himself. And I think that's gonna be, be good. So, so thanks for everything, but we're ready to go. That would be absurd. 
That would be letting the patient become the physician. And we do the same thing when we allow people to create their own truth rather than learning and having them learn and pointing them to the truth. For he himself is our peace. It's in Christ that we can have peace with people. It's in Christ that we can find peace with ourselves. And it's in Christ that we can find peace with God. He has done the brutal work of tearing down these barriers and these dividing walls of hostility. I pray that you would rest in that, you would trust in that, and that you would live that. That you would join us in inviting people in. And you would join us in being a part of tearing down the walls rather than building walls back up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your unbelievably extravagant love. And God, we thank you that that is available to every single human being on the planet. But Lord, we stand here now and we proclaim that it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we can be made right in your eyes, that we can have relationship with you. So Father, I pray now for my friends who don't yet know you, who haven't yet trusted Jesus with their life. And God, I ask that you would move them to that step of faith. Lord, for those of us who do trust you and and have given our lives to you, God, give us a new sense of urgency and, and boldness to be a part of tearing down barriers and walls of hostility and pushing and breaking through to bring peace. We have a beautiful opportunity staring us in the face right now. And God, I pray that we would seize it well. In Christ's name, amen.